In your estimation, does Iran want a multi-front war with Israel? Look, that's the big question. Was this a preamble to the war that Iran planned? Did they see this as a moment that they were going to try to galvanize the Muslim world and try to draw in as many actors as possible and to set the region on fire? That's terrorism expert Jonathan Shanzer discussing the danger that Iran could escalate the conflict between Israel and Hamas into a multi-front regional war. I'm Margaret Hoover. This is the Firing Line podcast. This has always been Israel's nightmare scenario, in my view. President Joe Biden traveled to Israel this week in a historic trip, marking the first time a U.S. president has visited that country during a war. As Israel prepares to mount a ground invasion of Gaza in response to the October 7th Hamas attack. The civilized world must unite to defeat Hamas. The humanitarian crisis inside Gaza grows more desperate. And the lives of over 200 hostages held by Hamas hang in the balance. There may come a time where the Israelis determine that the well-being of 9.9 million other people must override the concern and heartbreak associated with these kidnapped Israelis. That would, I think, ultimately be a brutal decision, but it might be one that Israel is forced to make. Dr. Jonathan Shanzer, a senior vice president at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies, says Israel has no choice but to send troops into Gaza. And he warns the Biden administration's policies have emboldened Iran and enriched its terrorist proxies, setting the stage for this crisis. There is an open question as to whether the U.S. has actively deterred Iran. This is the game. This is the stare down that I am watching right now. Dr. Jonathan Chancer, welcome to Firing Line. Thank you. After the October 7th attack, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu swiftly vowed to eliminate Hamas. And we've seen troops building up on Israel's border with Gaza for nearly two weeks. What factors have caused Israel's delay entering Gaza? Well, I think there are a number of things that uh, Israel is balancing right now. Number one, I think the Israelis didn't want to launch an invasion before President Biden uh, arrived. Uh, And then, of course, that was followed by Prime Minister uh, Sunak from the UK. Uh, So I think the Israelis wanted to wait for that show of international support. Uh, At the same time, we are aware of a diplomatic channel that is being conducted out of Qatar, Um, The optics of this are actually somewhat crazy. The Qataris are themselves uh, sponsors of Hamas. They give them tens of millions of dollars a year, and they even allow Hamas to operate an office in Doha. And they right now are uh, acting as a trusted American ally, if you will, uh, to try to help negotiate the release of these hostages. I have my doubts about the Qataris' intentions. Uh, But it appears that the U.S. and Israel are allowing for this channel to play out. That may have something to do with the delay. And then finally, there has, I think, been some concern expressed by Israelis within the security establishment that a ground war is not as simple as one might think, that there are, uh, as I heard it, hundreds of kilometers of underground tunnels, some of which have been unexplored by the Israelis. They don't have all of the intelligence needed in order to conduct a war underground. It could be close quarter combat. 
And there, I'm sure, will be a lot of surprises planted by Hamas, if not the Iranians themselves. And so one gets a sense that the Israelis are gathering what they can in terms of intelligence before they go in, uh, lining up the support that they need. And then there's one other factor, and that is that uh, there is the potential right now for a multi-front conflict. You've got to remember that the regime in Iran has multiple proxies that it has funded over the years. This is a strategy that dates back to the 1980s, where the Islamic Republic has funded groups like Hezbollah, Islamic Jihad, Hamas, and others. Uh, they've armed them, they've trained them. And so there is a concern that should Israel enter into the Gaza Strip, uh, that other fronts could erupt, namely Lebanon, where Hezbollah has 150,000 rockets, that it can start firing at Israel almost immediately. Uh, there are Shiite militias that are operating in Syria that also could potentially uh, harm Israel. There is the West Bank, which uh, we've seen sporadic reports over the last several days of Israeli operations, arrests of Hamas activists and terrorists. Um, these are all, I think, weighing heavily on the mind of Benjamin Netanyahu, who is, and it's hard to remember this with him because he's got a reputation that I think is sometimes exaggerated. He's very careful. He does not like to take significant risks, not in the military realm. In the intelligence gathering realm, he will do it. In the diplomatic realm, he will do it. Militarily, he knows the history of Israel. He is fearful of quagmires. And that also may be part of what has prompted him to delay. I want to unpack all of these issues that you have just raised. First, let's go back to the hostages. You have suggested serious concern with the ability of the Qataris to be effective as hostage negotiators on behalf of the Americans and the Israelis. Is there a better way? You know, it's a good question. And I don't know who should do it. I mean, the Israelis have actually called upon the International Red Cross. Uh, to be the ones that work this file. Uh, but instead, what's happening is, I think, a shuttle diplomacy uh, uh, process that's unfolding in Qatar. You saw Anthony Blinken arrive there. The next day, the Iranian foreign minister arrives there. There's ongoing conversations with the Hamas office there. There is something sort of Orwellian about all of this, uh, that the Qataris, for really the better part of a decade, have been playing arsonist and firefighter in this conflict. You cannot be a sponsor of Hamas and then also offer your good offices and expect to be respected in this way. And somehow the U.S. is taking all of this at face value, sort of shrugging it off. And I should note, by the way, as well, um, the Qataris did this with the Taliban, right? They opened up a, uh, an embassy in Doha, and then ultimately helped to negotiate America's embarrassing exit from Afghanistan and was thanked for it. Well, and yet the Qataris were among the most effective actors at assisting the U.S. in evacuating our allies from Afghanistan, were they not? Well, you could make that argument, but you could also make the argument that they normalized the idea that the Taliban should be an accepted government in Afghanistan. Um, and, and, and that the U.S. had essentially no choice but to work with them. Um, and, and this is the sort of outcome that I think the Qataris always like to steer these crises. 
they actually have created infrastructure in order to try to promote an outcome that they desire. And in this case, they seek to legitimize Hamas. That has always been the Qatari goal. And I don't think this is the moment to be legitimizing Hamas. It may not even be the moment to negotiate with the terrorist group, given the slaughter that it has just perpetrated. And yet, where does that leave the hostages? Well, look, there are 203 of them by last count. Um, the Israelis are obviously sick uh, to their stomachs about the prospect of what it would take to get them out. Uh, what we hear is that they're being held underground in uh, military facilities that have been um, created by a Hamas shadow unit that is uh, tasked with uh, monitoring their health and well-being, which is, of course, um, a, you know, a relative term here. Um, I think that at some point, and I don't know when that point comes, but the Israelis will come to the conclusion that the negotiations have reached a point of diminishing returns and that action needs to be taken regardless of the hostages. In other words, there's no way that Israel can fight a war in the Gaza Strip, urban warfare, brutal fighting. Uh, they can't fight with one hand tied behind their backs, and they may need to just assume that there will be significant losses um, as they go in. And, and again, I think we're just watching. It's a question of timing. It's a question of intelligence or signs of progress um, but I don't think that uh, from Netanyahu's perspective, it can last that much longer. There is a broader question now of deterrence and whether Israel is losing that deterrence because it is waiting. When you said if they're not constrained by the hostages, what did you mean? <sighs> Look, uh, there may come a time where the Israelis determine that the well-being of 9.9% million other people must override the concern and heartbreak uh, associated with these uh, kidnapped Israelis. That would, I think, ultimately be a brutal decision, but it might be one that Israel is forced to make, especially in light of the fact that the interlocutor here is, you know, it's a Hamas patron. Um, and it's unclear whether they are double dealing and working with the Iranians and working with Hamas to give them time and space to uh, prepare for a ground invasion. And so at a certain point, the Israelis may say, you know what, we're actually helping the other side here. Um, it's time to drop the gloves and just do what is necessary, which is, you know, again, their objective is to eviscerate the Hamas leadership and dislodge it from Gaza. And what about the American hostages? Look, that, that is also part of the constraint. And it's not just American hostages, right? We've got Russian hostages and, um, you know, we, uh, we've got Nepalese and, and Thai. And I mean, it's the list of internationals, French. Um, the, list, the list of internationals is long and shocking. I mean, I think it's a testament to Israel's melting pot, by the way. But now you've got all of these other countries that have a stake in the hostage diplomacy efforts. And Israel, at some point, may not be able to allow it to continue because it is not serving Israel's military interests, that it's giving its enemies time and space to prepare for the next phase of the battle. And that is a brutal decision, and I do not envy Benjamin Netanyahu or his chief of, uh, the military chief of staff, Herzi Alevi. These guys, I think, have gut-wrenching decisions that lay before them.
Well, I, I, I want to go back to another element that you that you raised in your first answer, which is this question of of how deeply entrenched Hamas is within the densely populated streets of Gaza. Um, they are working from underground tunnels, as you said, uh, often from civilian locations like hospitals. You predicted in your book, Gaza Conflict 2021, that as Hamas becomes more technologically advanced, quote, Gaza wars will get nastier over time. Is Israel prepared for this kind of operation? It's a good question. Um, we have not seen the Israelis try to do something like this since 2014. And of course, as I noted, uh, their, um, their capabilities have grown. Uh, the training, the arms that they've received from the Islamic Republic of Iran uh, has undoubtedly made them a more formidable foe. Um, I do believe that the Israelis have all the capabilities that they need, um, especially if they are not constrained by this hostage situation and they uh, begin to strike the tunnels from above, uh, penetrating uh, you know, the uh, the ground above and uh, and start to destroy some of this infrastructure. I think that you're going to see a lot of that. By the way, you know, you mentioned hospitals. A big looming question right now, I think, uh, will be this um, operation center. It's a headquarters of Hamas. It's in Gaza City under the Shifa Hospital, and it is a target that the Israelis cannot ignore. I'm going to I'm going to ask you about that. Let me just let me ask you about something else you wrote in your book first. Um, you wrote in your book, quote, though Israel is a far superior military power, there is no clear military solution to the Hamas threat. Do you still believe that? Well, um, you know, I think under the previous um, sort of uh, agreement, rules of engagement between Hamas and Israel, I think that was probably true. I don't know if it's true now. In other words, when you hear the rhetoric of the Israelis, and it's hard to ignore the point that they're making right now, which is if Hamas can perpetrate a pogrom, a slaughter of 1,400 people, um, that there is no way that Israel can live next to this group any longer. Right? They are right on Israel's border. There's a lot of talk about the comparisons between 9-11 and 10-7. The attacks in this country uh, were you know, obviously scarring to many Americans. But you know, it's not as if al-Qaeda was operating um, out of Taliban-controlled territory on America's border. That would have, I think, uh, created a drastically different situation. And um, I think the, you know, uh, the Israelis now, when they look at Gaza, and they look at Hamas, and it is literally just you know a stone's throw away uh, from villages and towns and farms on Israel's border. And you could get a sense of the fear of the southern communities as a result of this uh, this attack on October seventh. The Israelis, I think, have made it clear that there is no other solution other than a military one. And this is what they appear to be preparing for. So, so there's been a paradigm shift. This this changed everything. Uh, it a hundred percent. There is no there's no other way to look at it, right? I mean, up until uh, you know a week and a half ago, two weeks ago, the Israeli military establishment looked upon Hamas as what they called a tactical threat. 
the Israelis has kind of created three broad buckets. There's the existential threat, which is, you know, uh, Iran, if and when it gets a nuclear weapon, right? That it has the ability to destroy Israel. Then there's the strategic threats. That's like Hezbollah with its 150,000 rockets and precision-guided munitions that could potentially do grave damage to, um, to Israel's strategic uh, depth. And then there's tactical, which is, you know, essentially, uh, you know, it was, a, I think, a way of describing an annoyance that can be deadly, but that was manageable. It's no longer manageable from Israel's perspective, that they just simply cannot allow for Hamas to exist. I heard one former Israeli official say the moment that they killed that many people was the moment that they lost the right to exist. Very stark language. And I have not heard that change in terms of the rhetoric coming from the IDF or from uh, official or even unofficial representatives of the Israeli government uh, on Israeli television and radio. President Biden said that he spoke with Prime Minister Netanyahu about alternatives to a ground operation. What are the alternatives? Well, there, I think there are a lot of things that we are going to see in the weeks and months to come that um, are going to be taking place far from the Gaza Strip. I suspect that we will see a campaign not unlike the one the world witnessed after the 1972 Munich Olympic massacre, where the Israelis launched a vengeance campaign assassinating all of the actors that were involved in the perpetration of that terrorist attack. This could take months and I think will span all of the jurisdictions where Hamas is operating. That includes Qatar, it includes Turkey, Malaysia, Algeria, Sudan, Lebanon, Iran itself. I think there will be a gray zone campaign uh, of elimination. I think it's hard to imagine anything else given the MO of the Mossad as we know it. There will, I think at some point, there will almost certainly be a showdown between Israel and Hezbollah. Hezbollah, of course, has been firing uh, anti-tank rockets and infiltrating Israel from the northern border. Um, it has been contained, but it is a very fluid and dangerous situation. Hezbollah has 150,000 rockets. It's got 500 to 1,000 precision-guided munitions. It's got military capabilities that are deemed to be equivalent to a mid-size European army. Uh, its fighters have trained alongside Iran and Russia inside Syria. We are talking about a threat that would require a rather brutal confrontation. There are open questions about whether this is the actor that Israel should dispatch with first before getting to perhaps the messier but possibly easier battle in Gaza. Um, and then there's the question of you know, how does Israel force the regime in Iran, which is the primary patron of Hamas and Hezbollah and all these other groups, how does Israel um, uh, exact a price from Tehran? And there are lots of options that Israel has in terms of direct confrontation, but also gray zone warfare, cyber warfare, ways to destabilize the regime in Iran. All of these things, one gets a sense, are going to be on the table. Maybe they're even on the table now. Um, we just have not yet seen the first steps uh, taken in this war other than the aerial bombardment of Gaza, which has been ongoing almost from day one. 
In your estimation, do you think a ground operation is inevitable? I do. Uh, I, I mean, again, when you hear the Israeli rhetoric, they have made it clear that Hamas cannot exist on that border um, okay. with the current threat that it poses. Let that me ask, is, it, it's clear. Yeah, let me ask you a quick question. So then you've said there are tens of Hamas militants in Israel still after infiltrating on October 7th. What do you know about this? I can't say much. I mean, you know, one of the things that I do is uh, I often, you know, I'm reading the uh, Israeli um, sort of media and uh, and government accounts on um, Twitter or X, whatever we're calling it now. We, you know, we see these uh, reports uh, suggesting that Israel has identified the the real possibility or perhaps even, you know, undisputed fact that there are still operatives inside Israel that infiltrated on October 7th and that these cells could be activated for attacks. Uh, there is uh, heightened vigilance across the system for those that might uh, try to attack targets of worth inside Israel. Um, and, you know, we're actually watching the Israelis are making arrests on a regular basis in the West Bank and in Israel proper for those that are working with Hamas or believed to be, um, you know, uh, perhaps trying to advance Hamas's objectives. Uh, so it's very fluid. But this was a report that came out, uh, I don't know, middle of the week. Do you believe that Iran is helping Hamas prepare for Israel's ground invasion of Gaza? 100 percent. How? There is no question that uh, Iran knew that uh, hostage taking and a slaughter of the scale that was witnessed on October 7th, there's no question that Iran knew that this would elicit a significant response from the Israelis. Um, and so I do, um, I've got concerns about what phase two of this war looks like, what Iran had planned, I'm assuming booby traps, I'm assuming attempts to kidnap and kill soldiers uh, from tunnels, uh, perhaps other weapons that the Israelis have not seen before on the battlefield. Uh, you know, Iran has a strategy of arming and uh, and training uh, all of these proxy groups for a war of the nature that we might be seeing um, right now unfold before our eyes, a multi-front conflict. Um, this has always been Israel's nightmare scenario, in my view. And it's, of course, there's a sad irony here. This is taking place on the 50th anniversary of the last major uh, multi-front conflict. Of course, I'm referring to the 1973 Yom Kippur War. President Biden was in Israel this week, and you've said that President Biden's aim this week was to do exactly what you just referenced to prevent a multi-front conflict with Iran. How did he do? Well, we don't know yet. Um, you know, whether the U.S. has uh, effectively deterred Iran remains to be seen. I think the president has done, uh, he's taken the right steps. He's done what he can right now. Um, he deployed carrier uh, groups uh, to the East Med. There are 4,000 Marines who, by the way, are about to mark uh, the 40th anniversary of the Marine barracks bombing that was perpetrated by Hezbollah back in 1983. Um, the, he has deployed the military assets that are designed to stare down the Iranian regime and to stare down Hezbollah. And then he arrived in Israel and he embraced the Israeli public. He, he voiced support for the Israeli military for the ground invasion that we expect to come. Um, what the goal is, and it's unstated, but I think we can see very clearly the strategy 
that Israel and the United States and the UK and others have deployed, the strategy here is to try to isolate Gaza from all of the other action that could occur. In other words, deter Iran, convince it that it could actually um, suffer consequences by entering this battle, um, do the same with Hezbollah, prevent Hezbollah from actively engaging beyond what it has done, which has been limited so far in scope. And you know, if this works the way that I think the Israelis want it to, and maybe the Americans as well, um, it would be a situation where the Iranian axis looks on somewhat helplessly while Israel, with assistance from the US in some way or another, removes one of Iran's chess pieces from the board. In other words, they have nothing that they can do uh, but watch as Israel destroys Hamas and frees up one of its borders from the Iran-backed threat. This would be, I think, the soft landing that the Israelis are looking for. Whether it, it's an easy battle is another story entirely, but the last thing Israel wants, I think, is that multi-front war. That said, I think the Israelis, and I, I've heard this repeatedly on Israeli media and statements coming out of the IDF, um, they've made it clear that if they need to fight a two-front battle, they will, and it will be tough. Um, and I don't mean just tough for Israel, which of course would sustain, I think, quite a bit of damage from the rocket arsenal that, uh, that, Hezbo that Hezbollah has amassed, but I think the, uh, the military response would be devastating to both Gaza and Lebanon if Israel is forced into a situation where it needs to fight on both fronts. You've, you've been critical of the Biden administration for its past appeasement of Iran, including the now frozen deal to release $6 billion for the prisoner swap. In your estimation, does Iran want a multi-front war with Israel? Look, that's the big question. Was this 10-7 slaughter, was that a, uh, a preamble to the war that, that Iran planned? Um, in other words, did they see this as um, a moment that they were going to try to galvanize the Muslim world um, and you know, try to draw in as many actors as possible and to set the region on fire? And there could be a number of reasons for wanting to do that. I mean, there is, of course, the obvious uh, longstanding goal of the regime that it simply seeks to destroy Israel, and it has threatened to do so repeatedly. Um, there's also the question of whether they might use this opportunity while everyone's eyes are on Israel and the attacks that are taking place there to make a dash for a nuclear weapon, which we know, of course, has been one of the objectives of the regime, and they have not stopped, they have not been deterred from doing this. Um, and uh, I think there's also perhaps another motivation here, which is to try to derail the normalization process that we have watched unfold in the Middle East since 2020 with the signing of the Abraham Accords. And of course, right before this, uh, this war broke out, uh, there were multiple reports that the Saudis and Israelis were drawing closer to a normalization deal. All of that has been derailed by Iran. So you can see the interests of Iran here in stoking the, the conflict that it has. And you know, to get to your question about my critique of the Biden administration, look, there has been an effort, an ongoing effort by the Biden administration to separate out 
Iran's malign activity and support for terrorism from the nuclear track. And so the administration, just as the Obama administration did before, um, has been offering all manner of financial inducements uh, to the regime to try to convince it to stop its nuclear uh, advances and to, you know, at minimum hold steady. What that has amounted to, in my view, has been appeasement and the financing of a terrorist state. You know, we saw 150 billion dollars transferred to the regime uh, in the aftermath of the 2015 uh, JCPOA or Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, the nuclear deal. That's that. I mean, by the way, that that deal also really began to tear America apart. I see that as one of the roots of America's political dysfunction right now. That's a whole other story. Uh, but you know what this has done at the end of the day is it has enriched the regime. Um, and I don't see a lot of progress in terms of inhibiting Iran's nuclear advancements, but all the while it has given Iran the funds that it needs in order to finance Hezbollah, Hamas, Islamic Jihad, Shiite militias across Syria and Iraq, the Houthis in Yemen. I mean, this has been a disastrous policy in my estimation. And I do think that, you know, look, the, the administration was very sensitive in the early days after the slaughter took place. They were um, really pushing back hard on this question of the $6 billion and was it released to the Iranians? By the way, just parenthetically, the $6 billion was being held in banks in Qatar, which is of course a Hamas <laughs> sponsor. The optics of this were just so bad. And I do hope that in light of all of this and in light of the president's embrace of the Israelis and the recognition of Iran's hand behind all of this, that maybe it's time for a policy review, that the way in which Democrats in particular have approached the Iran challenge, maybe it's time to revisit some of these assumptions because I believe that it has ended in failure. And I, I've got to think that Biden administration officials are starting to come to that realization as well. Iran has enough highly enriched uranium to build several nuclear bombs. How do Iran's nuclear ambitions factor into this moment? Look, it is um, ultimately, you know, we talked about Hamas being a piece on the chessboard um, and and it might be removed um, if the United States and Israel and others play their cards right. Uh, But the ultimate chess piece here, right? The queen, the most powerful piece on the board is an Iranian nuclear weapon. And for, uh, for Israel, they have been forced to fight on multiple fronts. They've done it in the gray zone. They call it the campaign between the wars. Um, and it's been going on for 10 years where the Israelis have been doing everything they can to try to derail, weaken, and otherwise harm the Iranian nuclear program. So they've gone after, uh, you know, I think probably a half dozen or more uh, Iranian nuclear scientists. These guys have, um, you know, have been gunned down. Uh, the father of the Iranian nuclear program, uh, Mohsen Fakhrazadeh, was uh, also killed in Iran. We've seen cyber attacks that have, uh, you know, disabled or destroyed uh, centrifuges spinning in Iran. Um, there is an ongoing effort to try to derail it and uh, Iran appears undeterred. It, I have to say, this entire thing is, has also been undermined by American intelligence and others who have tried to project this idea that Iran is not committed to a nuclear weapon in the past. 
We know now that it is fully committed, and you can see why. If it gets a bomb, then that is the ultimate insurance policy. It's an umbrella for the Iranians to be able to continue to engage in this kind of activity, the sponsorship of terrorist activities that utterly destabilize the region and harm American interests and allies. I want to ask you about the explosions at a hospital in Gaza. Uh, U.S. intelligence and independent experts say Palestinian militants are responsible for the Gaza hospital blast this week, not Israel. Israel released audio from a conversation they say was between members of Islamic Jihad, realizing their own rocket hit the hospital. They've also released video that is said to show the misfire. So how conclusive are these findings in your estimation? From what I can tell, and I am not a, a ballistics expert, I, I, you know, I, I don't fancy myself a, uh, an expert on rocket trajectories, the statistical direction of, uh, of these rockets, but from what I can tell, there is um, wide agreement across the Israeli military establishment, and I don't think it's just for PR purposes, because the Israelis have actually claimed responsibility at times for mistakes that have made on the battlefield. Um, you know, there was that story of Shireen Abu Akleh, the, uh, the Al Jazeera uh, reporter who was killed, uh, I think, you know, maybe a year ago, uh, where the Israelis admitted, yeah, this appears to have been errant fire from the IDF. So they will, they will admit to errors when they occur on the battlefield. They really dug in here. They showed the information uh, to members of Congress, to uh, the White House. Uh, this has been acknowledged and accepted widely across the board. And they've offered that audio evidence. They've, they've offered the visual evidence. And then I think there's one other point that um, hasn't been, I think, uh, addressed enough. And that is that his uh, that uh, Hezbollah and Hamas have advanced rocket arsenals. Um, they are far more professional. Uh, Islamic Jihad is a smaller group, doesn't have the same kind of funding or training uh, as some of these larger groups that threaten uh, Israel. Uh, and we've seen in the past that uh, Islamic Jihad has misfired its rockets. There was a two-day skirmish in the Gaza Strip between Israel and Islamic Jihad in 2022. Um, there were about a thousand rockets fired by Islamic Jihad then, and there were a number of misfires during that war. Um, and, and the Israelis made less of it back then. I do think that, you know, uh, the Israelis are making a point here, which is that Iran and its proxy groups have invited this war upon the 2.2 million people living in the Gaza Strip, and they continue to do harm. And I think it actually is an honest message that the Israelis are delivering right now because this was a war that was not needed. There was nothing that prompted it. It came out of the blue. Um, and, uh, you know, you could say that Hamas has this longstanding, you know, goal of, uh, you know, destroying Israel or liberating what it calls Palestine. Uh, you know, fine, I understand the narrative, but ultimately this was an unprovoked attack that is now going to bring misery upon um, a densely populated area that's roughly the size of Washington, D.C., with 2.2 million Palestinians paying a price. The original New York Times headline about the blast that has since been taken down was, quote, Israeli strike kills hundreds in hospital, Palestinians say. There is still a tweet up 
that basically says the same thing, that apparently relied on a statement from the Gaza Health Ministry. Are you surprised at how quickly the narrative of blaming Israel took off? I mean, no, I'm not surprised. And, you know, you mentioned my book, Gaza Conflict 2021. Um, In the book, I I actually um, really unpack to the extent that I was able in the short amount of time that I wrote that book after the last major round of conflict, there is a huge disconnect between what I see in Hebrew, in the Israeli press, what I see in Arabic from a number of sources, and what is reported in the United States. The coverage is a lot, just the, the quality is poor relative to what we see coming out of the region. The way that the conflict is often relayed, I think, um, you know, in, in the various television channels, it's often the political flavor of the viewership um, and not so much the facts. Um, there are uh, multiple actors that have access to grind Um, And it's clear they jump to conclusions one way or the other without waiting for facts to come in. Um, And there's a dumbing down, of course, of the news um, in ways that I think are extremely unhelpful. And, um, you know, it's become something of a circus or a food fight here in the way that uh, that this conflict is covered. There are clear facts that emerge. Um, There are clear attempts at disinformation. Separating wheat from chaff is a difficult job. Um, and it's, you know, it's ultimately what I do when these conflicts erupt. I will spend hours, m- many more hours than I would wish, trying to unpack what the truth is uh, during the fog of war. More often than not, um, it, it's the Israelis that have the professional military and it's Hamas that is engaging in disinformation. This should not be a surprise to anyone. You've got a a state actor aligned with Western values on the one side, and you've got a non-state actor aligned with rogue states on the other. Um, the, The information flows should be obvious to all. I mean, when the media starts citing the Gaza Ministry of Health, there is something deeply twisted about that, right? The Gaza Ministry of Health is Hamas. Hamas took over the Gaza Strip by force in a civil war against the internationally recognized Palestinian Authority back in 2007. So for the last 16 years or so, uh, it has been a almost a Taliban-like government. And the media accepts their reports as fact. This would not happen with the Taliban. It wouldn't happen with even with the Iranians, for that matter. There, there would be a healthy skepticism of these kinds of regimes, and yet somehow when Hamas makes these claims, they are regurgitated almost immediately with very little fact-checking. And this is, I think, the Al-Ahli hospital uh, explosion is a, a prime example of the failures that we see in Western media. In the aftermath of the hospital ex- explosion, there were anti-Israeli demonstrations throughout the Middle East. And the King of Jordan canceled a summit with President Biden and other Arab leaders. To what extent, Jonathan, is the Arab world able to consider the evidence that the blast wasn't Israel's fault? There is no accountability here. None. Um, So the evidence doesn't matter. It, it, it clearly doesn't. I mean, the Israelis had provided evidence within a short amount of time, which is very uncharacteristic of the Israelis, by the way, 
Uh, and then, uh, you know, you began to see Western governments come out and acknowledge the facts as the Israelis were presenting them um, and, and, and essentially side with Israel in this narrative battle. Uh, and yet we saw massive protests unfolding um, in Lebanon, in Turkey. By the way, these are all places that have aligned themselves quite openly uh, with Hamas, if not the Iranian regime. And, um, you know, I think, look, I, I was making some comments about the Arab street, as it's called. Um, I believe the Arab street in general has enabled Hamas. It has never restrained Hamas. It has given a green light uh, for Hamas to carry out these kinds of attacks against Israel. The palpable hatred for Israel that we see in these angry mobs is what ultimately comes through above all else. And the facts really don't matter to most of these people. Um, and what's really interesting actually to me about the, the eruption that we saw in the Arab street is the way in which it, it I, I think it, it really, um, it, it caused the West, the US and others to pause, right? There is a fear that the so-called Arab street, the anger that uh, was being um, manifested on the streets of some of these countries, that it could spill over and create some kind of cascading effect that would destabilize the entire region. Um, I think that, you know, when we look at the, the way that things are unfolding in the region right now, this cannot be allowed any longer. The Arab street has actually influenced Western policy for far too long. And this, this is not a rational actor. <laughs> this is mob rule that doesn't care about facts. And I do think that there's a paradigm shift that's needed. Um, you know, who's going to talk, talk tough back to the Arab world? I don't know. I would say though that, you know, uh, Israel's uh, peace partners, the normalization agreements that it has signed over the years, I think if there was ever a time for the Emiratis or the Moroccans uh, or the Bahrainis to speak up, this would be it. You're not going to see it from Egypt. They are incredibly fearful of a humanitarian crisis that could spill over into the Sinai Peninsula, and they are doing everything they can to prevent uh, Palestinians from leaving the Gaza Strip. This is their interest. In other words, just to put it very bluntly, Egypt is so um, uh, is such a, a great advocate for the Palestinian cause that the Egyptians are willing to sacrifice the lives or livelihoods of two million people that want to get out of the Gaza Strip. The Jordanians are also digging in. They don't want, their country is already an estimated 80% Palestinian. The last thing they want is another you know, million or two million Palestinians living there. It would destabilize the country or weaken the Hashemite rule there. Uh, but you know what we're watching is, it's almost um, a throwback to the Arab nationalism of the 1950s supporting the Palestinian cause, but not supporting Palestinians and not trying to negotiate with the you know, more powerful party, namely Israel. Jonathan, you warned there's an even bigger hospital in Gaza City that's home to Hamas's command center. Is that an inevitable target for Israel? I, I gotta tell you, if you thought that the battle over the Al-Ahli um, uh, hospital, uh, the one that uh, was hit by an Islamic Jihad rocket, if you thought that there was a, uh, a brutal public debate um, that ultimately, you know, enraged the Arab street, just wait. 
Um, we've long been aware of the fact that the Al-Shifa Hospital, which is based in uh, Gaza City, it is the command center of Hamas. It is uh, several stories below ground. Uh, it's where the leadership operates. And uh, it is the ultimate human shield. It is the ultimate war crime. And I mean, Hamas deliberately built this facility with that in mind that, you know, uh, with the assumption that Israel could never bomb the largest hospital in the Gaza Strip. And so uh, they operate with a sense of security there. Um, I think the Israelis, from what I've heard, have been looking at different ways of approaching the hospital to try to mitigate uh, the loss of life uh, if and when the ground invasion begins in earnest. Uh, and, uh, but I don't know whether there is even a way to mitigate this. And that, you know, really what the Israelis have said is every military target will be struck. Every means of decapitating the leadership will be used. And so one has to imagine that there will be a lot of discussion at some point about the Al-Shifa hospital and what lies beneath it. There's ongoing confusion about border crossings and when they will be open to those fleeing Gaza. Why does it appear as though Egypt is reluctant to open its borders? And why are other Arab countries refusing to accept Palestinian refugees? Yeah, I mean, look, th this is something that uh, that I wrote about with uh, FTD CEO Mark Dubowitz in the Wall Street Journal uh, early in the week. Um, look, you know, again, the Egyptians, they've got a, a, a bad economy right now. They've got their own challenges. I mean, the, the president there actually issued a speech not long ago where he was telling Egyptians that, um, you know, if uh, they may need to eat less in order to sustain uh, the Egyptian state. Um, it's not, it's a country that is, I think, going through some severe challenges politically and economically, and they don't want uh, a refugee problem in the Sinai. They don't want this humanitarian Carter. But I think more importantly, the Egyptians are trying to, you know, in their minds, stand up for uh, the Palestinian cause. They don't want to see facts on the ground change. They don't want to see the Gaza Strip emptied because this is a territory that the Palestinians claim for their national project. And so again, we see the Egyptians and the Jordanians and others uh, essentially digging in, trying to be advocates for the Palestinian nationalist movement for you know, territorial claims, while essentially shrugging at the notion that a humanitarian corridor is going to be necessary. And one of the things that, um, that uh, Mark Dubowitz and I suggested in our piece was that, um, first of all, Egypt need not be the country that ultimately absorbs these refugees, that there should be, I think, a meeting of the Arab League or even of the UN that pushes for the absorption of some of these refugees um, in, in the countries that have been Hamas financiers. So the Qataris, the Turks, the Iranians, uh, the Lebanese, for that matter, not that Lebanon can afford to absorb anymore, but, you know, all these countries, Malaysia is another jurisdiction where there is Hamas support. Um, why we're not holding these countries to account right now and forcing them, really, I mean, putting pressure on them to take accountability for the crisis that they have created, this to me seems like the only policy um, it shouldn't be left on the shoulders of the Egyptians, despite some of the cynical policies that we've watched coming out of Cairo. Um, they're not the ones who are ultimately to blame. The, uh, the sponsors of Hamas truly are. 
So I think that needs to be part of it. There also, I mean, there's this, you know, uh, a UN agency, it's called the UN Relief and Works Agency. It's been around since the 1950s, and it is dedicated entirely to Palestinian refugees. Here's the, the catch, though, is that there are very few Palestinian refugees left from the 1948 War of Independence, um, or what the Palestinians call the Nakba, or the catastrophe. There's, I think, maybe 10,000, 20,000 of the original ones left. What UNRWA has been doing, what this agency has been doing, is it's been perpetuating the myth of a refugee problem by recognizing the descendants of refugees. Now we actually have a refugee problem that is imminent. And the question is whether, you know, the international community can deploy UNRWA in a way that would allow it to be useful and helpful to the people that wish to escape the Gaza Strip. And instead, what we're watching is an Arab world that does not want to allow that to happen and an international community that appears paralyzed by this. If the concern is for loss of life, the concern is for trying to prevent catastrophic events from befalling this community, the idea would be to get them out, to establish a humanitarian corridor, and at some point in the future to facilitate their return without Hamas in the Gaza Strip. This, in my view, is the clear objective of what's going on here. Uh, but the Arab world, the Arab street, are really voicing their opposition to um, this rather logical response to what was, I think by all accounts, one of the most horrific uh, acts of terrorism witnessed in decades. Humanitarian aid has been amassing at the Rafah border crossing between Egypt and Gaza for days now. And Israel announced this week that it will not block the aid's passage. Why is getting food and water and fuel to civilians who need it so complicated? Well, it, it's complicated for a number of reasons. One, I mean, the Israelis have also said almost in the same breath that they don't want to allow anything to go in so long as you know, uh, as of right now, there are 203 uh, Israeli hostages being held against their will by Hamas in the Gaza Strip. Well, but that's through the Israeli. I mean, they, they want to block humanitarian assistance through Israel's border with Gaza, though they will. They want to block humanitarian assistance from everywhere um, to uh, essentially put pressure on Hamas to return these hostages. Um, and, and that, they, you know, the way the Israelis have put it, it that's, that's their fair trade. Um, of course, Hamas is not interested in this, and so there is ongoing debates about exactly how this will unfold. Uh, you know, Egypt's president, uh, Abdel Fattah al-Sisi, has now vowed that, you know, there'll be, you know, 10 or 20 trucks of aid that come through. Uh, the World Health Organization is also part of the um, this sort of constellation of actors that are trying to deliver assistance. But then there's the question of when assistance comes through, um, you know, is it actually humanitarian aid? Are there dual-use items that Hamas could use uh, to buttress its uh, military capabilities? I mean, one of the trucks or several trucks uh, have reportedly come from Turkey. And Turkey, as we know, is a sponsor of Hamas. And recently, there was a shipment that was interdicted by the Israelis. It was said to be concrete or the concrete powder that would be mixed with water. The Israelis went in and found that it was tons of explosives that had been sent to Hamas. This is three, four weeks ago. Are there ways, Jonathan, to prevent humanitarian aid from falling into the hands of Hamas? 
Well, yeah, it would require the Israelis to comb through everything because no one else will. Um, and may maybe the Egyptians can say they would, but the Egyptians have allowed for some of this stuff to come through as well. And there are tunnels that, uh, that snake underground between the Sinai Peninsula and Gaza to this day. There used to be a lot more of them, and Sisi's cracked down on them, but he still allows some of them to operate. So the Israelis are, you know, for them, this is a high-stakes proposition here, allowing for truckloads of material to go into the Gaza Strip right now during a, uh, a hot war, uh, where there's a probably a better than average chance that people have tried to insert military material or dual-use material into these trucks. And so the Israelis are very wary, and they're trying to use this as leverage right now to get the release of these hostages that were taken on October 7th. You've got to understand that for Israel, the hostages, I mean, it, it, it's what's on their media constantly the shock of this, right? I mean, for, for years, you know, the Israelis had one soldier that was being held um, in Gaza. That was a guy by the name of Gilad Shalit from 2006 to 2011. And the Israelis made a full campaign of this. You heard about him constantly, about making sure that his plight was not forgotten. That was one man. And the Israelis ultimately traded roughly 1,000 Hamas prisoners to release him. Um, now think about what the Israelis must view um, this situation with, you know, 203 Israelis sitting in captivity. Some of them, by the way, I mean, we've heard of autistic children and, and people that, you know, are requiring medical attention and they're, they're probably not getting it. Elderly women. I mean, it's, it's sort of horrific for the Israelis as they recount what has happened. And, uh, and so the Israelis are trying to use whatever little leverage they have right now, short of a full military invasion to secure their release. You've been warning for days that the skirmishes at the northern border indicate that Hezbollah is pushing the region into a wider war. We've also seen reports of clashes at the Syrian border and violence in the West Bank. What does the U.S. and its allies need to do next in deterrence efforts? Yeah, I mean, look, I, you know, the deterrence process is already underway, or at least the attempts to deter. Um, you know, the, again, the naval assets, the Marines, uh, the personal uh, visit to Israel, uh, Biden's meeting with the uh, Israeli cabinet, the emergency government, voicing his open support for what needs to be done um, in order to neutralize Hamas and, and his, you know, warning to Iran and Hezbollah, uh, you know, don't even try it. Um, all of these things, I think, are the right steps toward deterring other um, other fronts from opening, potentially. There is, however, an open question, a troubling question about really whether American appeasement policies uh, that have been underway for the last two and a half years um, and that date back to 2011, 2012, 2013. Um, and, you know, this is, this is not a partisan swipe. It's associated with you know, two consecutive democratic governments. I think that's a fact. Um, you know, there is a, I think, an open question as to whether the U.S. has actively deterred Iran. And this is, I mean, this is the game. This is the stare down that I am watching right now. The Israelis are also doing what they can to deter. Um, and, but I think they look 
like they're on their back foot. They're trying to recover from a horrific slaughter from 10-7 and a, an intelligence collapse uh, that allowed for this to happen, a lack of readiness um, that I think was probably precipitated in part by some of the domestic turmoil that we saw spilling over onto the streets in Israel. So there is, I think, an effort right now for Israel to, you know, try to stand up again and get ready to fight uh, with the U.S. also snarling at Israel's enemies. This is, these are the efforts made at deterrence. And, and by the way, this doesn't include private messages that I'm sure are being relayed uh, through multiple channels to Iran, to Hezbollah, to, you know, Lebanon, to Turkey, to Qatar, um, to try to contain this war. But that is the game. Israel would like the ability to fight in Gaza without having multiple other fronts erupt. And the U.S. appears to be actively trying to um, steer things toward that outcome. The Brits as well, the French, the Germans, right? We're watching an international community rally around Israel and even push back on some of the negative messaging that we've talked about within you know, the media. Uh, to give Israel the time and space and the cover that it needs to do this. But it is, um, it's complex. Uh, there are a lot of moving parts. And the real big question is, will Iran stand pat? There are several ideas discussed about the future governance of Gaza in a post-Hamas Gaza scenario. Which of the ideas that are under consideration have the most viability to you? Um, look, I, I think we are now um, in the early days of discussing the post-Gaza uh, or post-Hamas future in Gaza. I think there will be, unfortunately, a lot of destruction um, because of the huge labyrinth of tunnels beneath the ground you're likely to see quite a bit of rubble as a result of this. And I think, you know, that is a, a deeply uh, terrible thing to expect, but I think it is, it's reality. Um, what it will do is uh, provide really almost a blank slate in some ways for reconstruction. The big question that I have is who steps up? You know, I mean, for the Saudis or the Emiratis or some of the other petrostates, um, you know, a billion dollars here, a billion dollars there. These are rounding errors. Um, and so there is an opportunity to make Gaza a much more livable place uh, and one that would be beneficial to Palestinians that want to live in peace side by side with Israel. I think there are real questions about the Palestinian Authority, which is irredeemably corrupt, um, led by a guy who's now 18 years or 16 years into a four-year term, Mahmoud Abbas is not fit to step in in any legitimate way to run the Gaza Strip after this is done. And so I think there may need to be a much broader discussion about the future of the Palestinian polity that the Arab world wants to see ruling these two territories, but there needs to be massive reform and massive investment. This is a Herculean task, and I don't know how much thought is being put into it right now. I will say that America's record of uh, state building has been poor, not just in the Palestinian arena, but of course across the Middle East. Um, I don't know who's better at it, uh, but I, I find it daunting. The reason I ask is because General David Petraeus has recently 
reflected on America's inadequate preparation for a post-conflict plan after invading Iraq post 9-11 and warned Israeli leaders not to make the same mistake. Yeah, and, and this is exactly, this is what we're referring to. I mean, the U.S. Uh, failed to, uh, you know, build what was needed in Iraq or Afghanistan, um, you know, in, in order to um, ensure a, a sustainable future in both of those places. Um, look, what, what it reflects is that, in my view, the United States was never terrific at state building. I mean, sure, we had the Marshall Plan after uh, World War II, and we've seen some successes there, but I think that is that is the exception to the recent rule that we're just unable, especially with populations that have um, uh, expressed you know, high levels of anti-Western, anti-American sentiment. Um, there is an open question whether this is something that Israel needs to do, that maybe you know, its job is to um, you know, destroy Hamas, deliver the statement that needs to be made, and then enable the right partners to step in and start to rebuild. Um, you know, is Israel, should Israel be on the hook for uh, what comes next right now? Israel didn't invite this war. It's not a war that it ever wanted to fight. Um, and I, I think we may see the Israelis stop there. I think the big question really is who they let in to uh, start the reconstruction. I would love to see the Arab world get more involved and have skin in the game. Um, because we just didn't see enough of that, I think, with the failed experiments uh, during the war on terror. A month after the surprise attack on Israel in 1973, William F. Buckley Jr. sat down with Hans Morgenthau, an expert on international relations, and they both agreed that Israel was a client state of the United States at that time. This is, of course, the, the tragedy of Israel, that it cannot pursue, can, it cannot afford to pursue a foreign policy at variance with the basic objectives of the United States. And the basic objectives of the United States are now uh, to gain a foothold in the Arab world, to push the Russians out of the Middle East, at least or diminish their influence, uh, in order to uh, prevent the Russians from controlling the Middle East strategically and more particularly in terms of oil. Is it true that Israel cannot afford to pursue a foreign policy at variance with the objectives of the United States, as he put it, anymore? You know, it's an interesting question right now. I do think that the basic objectives of Israel and the United States at, uh, I don't know, a 10,000, 30,000 foot level, um, they're, they're not at variance. Um, but, you know, I mean, I think, you know, both would like to see Russia ejected from uh, uh, from Syria, for example. Uh, both would like to see uh, Iran uh, deterred from acquiring a nuclear weapon. Both would like to see Iran's proxies defeated. It becomes a tactical question, though. And I do think that Israel has been restrained by the United States in conflicts past. I mean, let's just look at what's happened in Gaza since Hamas took over in 2007, all right, there were rounds of war in 2008, 2012, 2014, and then 2021. In each of those conflicts, the U.S. actively restrained Israel from going any further than it did, leaving Hamas in place in the Gaza Strip, 
in a safe haven where it was able to develop capabilities and additional means to kill Israelis, which were on full display on October 7th. The restraint that we've seen from Washington, in my view, is really the, the challenge that needs to be overcome here. And I do think that may be addressed here if the U.S. gives Israel the opportunity to demonstrate what it can do to one of Iran's proxies, that a message could be sent. So, look, the, the policies of the past have possibly hurt Israel um, and restrained it in ways that it shouldn't have been. Um, you know, I think I, I've always noticed this. You know, you see from the U.S. military and from our State Department this well, you know, we just want all sides to just, you know, calm down. We want to, we want everybody to just go back to their corners and, and let calm prevail. What that's done actually is it's helped Iran and it's helped Iran's proxies over time, right? The longer Israel has waited to dispatch with these enemies, the stronger they've become, the, uh, the larger their arsenals, uh, have, uh, I mean, their arsenals have grown. These are the sorts of things that I think, you know, I mentioned that I think there should be a policy review here in the United States. There needs to be a review of how this has transpired, whether this has benefited Israel, which is still considered an American ally. Has it helped America's ally in this way? I would argue that it hasn't. That said, there are still those larger strategic objectives where alignment is clear. We are no longer in the Cold War. But while Biden was in Israel, Vladimir Putin visited China. What is the connection from our perspective in the United States between our priority of supporting Israel and our priority of supporting Ukraine? It's a great question. And I think there is a strategic inflection point here that we all need to look at here in the United States. As I view it, there are three embattled American Democratic allies right now that are under threat. Israel, Ukraine, and Taiwan. And there are three aggressors that are actively trying to challenge the US-led world order. And they are, of course, Iran, Russia, and China. I believe that as these conflicts continue to burn or threaten uh, in the case of Taiwan, that there needs to be a cohesive strategy of supporting those that are willing to fight for themselves to sustain the American-led world order as, as we built it over these last decades. The US-led world order is, I think, without question at this point, it has been incredibly beneficial to the world. The access to technology and food and medicine, the advances that we've seen worldwide. This is a direct result of what the U.S. has uh, has crafted deliberately, the system that has benefited humanity, and it is now being challenged, and increasingly so. And this attack on Israel is part of that picture. The attack on Ukraine is part of that picture. And you can see that our three primary adversaries continue to cooperate with one another. The Iranians are providing UAVs and missiles to the Russians um, for them to be able to um, continue their assault on Ukraine. The Chinese are providing cover to both the Iranians and the Russians at the UN and elsewhere. The financial flows are clear. The diplomatic support is clear. 
there needs to be a congressional response and an administration response. And one gets a sense, by the way, that um, that this is increasingly happening. And even in polarized Washington, D.C., one gets the sense that a, uh, a foreign policy may be coalescing amongst those that inhabit the center, the center left and the center right. There will be, I think, always the extremists and the outliers within both parties, and they have their voice, and that's probably not going to change. Uh, but with any luck here, we'll start to see a coalescing of centrist foreign policy views in Washington that rally around this notion. Dr. Jonathan Chancer, thank you for joining me. Pleasure.